If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue on with our uh, look at this letter that strikes so close to our own hearts, uh, sometimes in a very difficult manner and sometimes in a very encouraging manner. And uh, as we continue on to, to look at Lord God's Word uh, through this 1 Corinthians. Last week we looked at the idea of contentment. Paul was, had been asked a question about whether it was permissible for a believer to be married. And that was a, we, we explained that was a different question than whether marriage was good. If he would have been asked if marriage was good, he would have, fallen, he would have given the same uh, lesson that he does in Ephesians. But he wasn't asked that. He was asked whether it was permissible. And so he answers that question. But as he answers the question, he goes deeper and begins to talk about the, the heart behind the question, which had to deal with contentment. And we talked about, uh, we looked at how contentment doesn't come through marriage. Contentment doesn't come through aestheticism or, or uh, contentment doesn't come through being single. Contentment doesn't come through the occupation that you choose to pursue. Uh, contentment can't come through worldly possessions. But that true contentment only comes through knowing our Creator and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This week, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul once again is asked a question that he deals with on the surface, but then he begins to deal with the heart of the question. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward question in its own right, but Paul realizes, just as he realized in the question about marriage, that there's something else going on underneath. And so he uses chapter 8, and really chapters 9 and 10 as well, to address that issue. This morning, though, we're just going to look at the first part of this argument, or this answer that he gives, and just look at chapter 8. And then we will continue to look at how 9 and 10 all come together uh, moving forward. So, if you would, hopefully by now you've found chapter 8. And so, if you would stand with me that we may honor the reading of God's Word this morning. 8 verse 1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. For food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not be 
will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this person, weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us. We thank you that you desire to communicate with us. And Lord, we thank you for knowledge. We thank you for wisdom. Lord, that you have given us minds that we might rationalize things and we might, we might use logic to think through the existence that you have given us, that we might know even you better as we study your word. Father, I pray this morning, though, that we would understand that our knowledge and that our wisdom are for our worship of you and for the edification of others. Lord, it is so tempting for us to use this mind that you've given us to belittle. It's, it's so easy for us to use this mind you've given us for our own pride and for our own uh, benefits and uh, to completely ignore or those that are around us. Father, I pray this morning that we would remember what you have done for us and the sacrifice that you made, that we might better learn how to make sacrifice for one another. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We are, uh, we're going to run through, kind of not not run, but we are going to walk quickly, let's say, through this chapter so that we can get to the, the application in a sense. Because this is one of those chapters that if we don't read carefully and then we don't understand the application carefully, that we can kind of begin to dismiss. Because I don't know about you, but it's been a while since I've seen someone offer a sacrifice to an idol. Like it's just, it hasn't something that hasn't come up lately. Not only that, we really haven't had very many conversations in business meeting lately about whether we should offer the meat that was offered to that idol. Um, it just it doesn't, it's not part of our normal business. And so we read chapters like this and we don't understand the context and we don't understand the application and then we just begin to dismiss them. We just read through them and we're like, oh, that was for them, it's not for us, it's no big deal. But the reality is this is a really big deal. Because it's not just dealing with the outward problem, but it's dealing with a heart problem that we can all identify with. And so, as we begin, let's talk about what problems Paul is dealing with here in chapters 8, and then also somewhat, in, or not somewhat, also in 9 and 10. The first problem, the question that he's asked on the surface, is can we eat food offered to idols? And for that, we need to have a little context. We need to know what's going on. So what has happened or what is happening in Corinth at the time that this letter is written, is that there are temples almost on every corner for all kinds of gods, for even emperors of, that were worshipped uh, by those in the Roman Empire. And they would bring, individuals who worship there would bring sacrifices, animals, and they would have them slaughtered. But the priest would not burn the whole animal. They would take the fatty parts of the animal usually. They would burn those. And then the rest of the carcass, the rest of the meat was left. 
So what to do with that meat? Well, what they would do with it is either they would take it to a market, right, usually located close to the temple, and they would sell the meat there with the proceeds going back to the temple, or they would have a, oftentimes they would have a social gathering in a hall connected to the temple where those who had brought sacrifices could gather with their friends and then eat of that meat. Um, let, me, let me kind of put it in Southern Baptist tradition. After service, they had a potluck. That's what was happening, okay? They would gather together to eat together after they had worshipped in the temple. But that eating of that meat was a continuation of worship. It wasn't that they just went to temple and they worshipped and they sacrificed their animal to Zeus or to Athena or whoever and then they went to eat. No, they would sacrifice and then they would go eat together and that eating of the meat was supposed to bring further blessing or further empowerment to them. Okay, so that eating wasn't just simply a social gathering. It was a continuation of worship to the idol. And so because of that, the Christians in Corinth are disagreeing about whether they should eat that meat at all. Should they go to these social gatherings and eat at the temple? Should they go to the markets and buy meat where they know most of it has been offered idols? What should they do? Now, that's the, that's the overarching question. However, there is an underlining issue, just as we've seen there's an underlining issue of all of this in the pride of their own knowledge. You'll remember from the very beginning, from I think the second Sunday we went through Corinthians, that we talked about every problem in this church goes back to their pride. And this is no different. Except for here, their pride and arrogance is in their own knowledge. Notice there in verse or in chapter 8 at the beginning, it says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so one of the things that he is saying here, notice that, he, that the ESV at least puts all of us possess knowledge in quotes, indicating that this was a phrase, this was a comment made by the Corinthian church. We all, they're saying, we all have knowledge. We all have gained understanding. We all have risen above all of these other people. And Paul says, be careful with that type of thinking. Be careful with thinking that you know everything, especially when you are ignoring brothers and sisters, and that's what he's going to get into in the rest of it. He says that kind of knowledge that seeks knowledge for its own sake, that kind of knowledge that desires just to build one person up over another, that knowledge puffs up. It brings about arrogance and pride, but love builds up. The reason that God has given us a mind is so that we can better understand Him and so that we can use that knowledge to encourage one another, not to tear one another down. And so he just says, hey, be careful here. And so what we're going to see in chapter 8 and then again in chapter 9 and chapter 10 over the next couple weeks is Paul begin to unfold, unfold this whole argument, this whole answer to the question dealing not with just the issue at hand but also dealing with the underlining problem the 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 real issue that's going on here all right so let's break apart chapter eight really quick and then we'll like i said we'll get into the application 
Chapters 4, verse 6 are are interesting to me. If you've uh, ever been around a parent or a coach or anyone that is training anyone, uh, inevitably you have seen this tactic used before where the the parent or the teacher or the coach comes to the person that is being trained and they say, hey, you did this really, really well. And they they begin to talk about the positives of that game or the positives of their thinking or the positives of their actions, right? And then they use a phrase, but or however, and the other shoe drops and they tell you about all the things that you did wrong. We've observed that. We know that. Well, that's what Paul does here. In verse 4 and 6, he says, hey, you all have some things right. You all, in your knowledge that you have gained, have figured some things out. They had some correct understanding. One of the things that they correctly understood was that there was only one God. He says there that they have figured out that in verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, you've gotten it. You've... You have come to a good knowledge that there are not many gods, as the Greeks and the Romans profess, that there are not many spirits, uh, as as the animists would profess, but rather that there is one God, one creator, and in that you do well. He also says that they have come to the understanding that idols are not real. He says there, in verse 4, he says, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. He says, you've done well to realize that that piece of wood or that statue of marble or that statue of gold or whatever they were worshiping, that it has no real presence. Just kind of like the, the rabbit's foot that you hold on your chain has no real, no real power. It doesn't really bring you luck. He says, that's good. We need to understand that. We need to understand that idols are not real, that they're just figments of our imagination, that they're things that are created by our own hands, and they have no ability to do anything. Therefore, they don't taint food. They don't taint the meat. They don't make it unclean. They don't make it unworthy of being eaten. And so the truth of the matter is, what the underlining truth that he's driving at, is that if you want to eat meat, That's offered to idols, there's no real problem with that. There's not a sin because the meat has no property to it. We understand that. And so in verse 4 6, he says, you get it. You have good understanding of this. And then in verse 7, he uses that phrase that we all wish, in part, was not part of the English language. He says, however. However. And he shifts now. He shifts from praising them and saying, you've got this figured out, you're doing good. He shifts now to say, you've missed something. He says in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. He says, not all Christians have come to the truth that you proclaim. Now, as a Christian, they probably got, they probably understood that there was one God. That part they got. And they had chosen to follow him. But, They were weak. They were young Christians. It says, but through former association with idols, they eat food as if it were really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Defiled there, the word is to be uh, condemned. That's another way, way we could interpret that Greek word there. They are defiled. They are made unclean. They are condemned by their own conscience. Okay? Let me, let me tell a story. And, and see if I can help you to understand this. 
Let's say we are members of the First Baptist Church of Corinth. And we have a brother in Christ who has just come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. His name is Phileas. Um, And Phileas, before he became a Christian, was an idol worshiper. And he, he totally believed that idols were real. And he was a big believer in Zeus. And so it was, you know, his normal, uh, almost weekly ritual that he would take one of his uh, chickens and he would, they didn't have chickens, but he would take chickens and he, and he would go to the temple of Zeus and they, he would have them slaughtered there and they would take all the, the guts out and they would burn those and then he would invite a couple friends and they would go to the social hall and they would eat fried chicken together after that and they knew that as they ate that fried chicken that Zeus was empowering them with his own power that they were going to be able to face the rest of the week because of the power that Zeus had given them because of the fried chicken that they had ate because it had been sacrificed to an idol well when Phileas becomes a Christian one of the first things that he is told by Bob is that you shouldn't worship idols anymore And he, you know, Bob's his Sunday school teacher, and Bob is the one that helped lead him to Christ. And he says, look, you can't worship idols anymore. They're not real. They're fake. You need to worship God and God alone. And so you need to put all all that stuff behind you. And so Phileas, our friend, says, that's perfect. I can, you know, I I love Jesus Christ. I know what he's done for me, and so I'm going to put that sin behind me. But Phileas is a young believer, and what Phileas realizes really quick is that just because you become a Christian doesn't mean life gets easy immediately. And Phileas still has hard times, and he still has difficulties, and there's a little part of Phileas that goes, you know what, like maybe I should go back. Because there's comfort in what we grow up with. There's comfort in the normal. There's comfort even in our sin until it destroys us. And so he's like, maybe, maybe, I, should, maybe I should do this. And he just keeps going, no, that's not what Christians do. Christians don't offer, offer things to idols. And Christians don't, don't go to those social gatherings and they don't eat that meat. Because we don't believe that that has any power. We believe in the power of Jesus Christ. All good things, right? Phileas is doing well. Well, one day, Phileas is walking down the street where the temple of Zeus is, and he walks by the social gathering hall, and out walks Bob. And Bob is holding a piece of fried chicken in his hand, and he has obviously been in the temple, and he's eating that meat, and he's got another friend named Steve with him, and they're just having a good time, and he's like, wait a minute, I thought we weren't supposed to do that. I thought we were, I thought we'd give up idol worship. I thought we were to give up all the eating of meat that, you know, this power of meat. And so Phil begins to go, he goes home and he begins to doubt. And he begins, you know, maybe if it's okay for them, and they're obviously covering their bases, then maybe I should cover my bases. Maybe I can, maybe I can, and maybe I should worship Jesus Christ and Zeus. Maybe I should go back to doing that idol worship and go back to eating that fried chicken because, man, I just want to play it safe. And so Bob and his Friend Steve, though they don't believe in idols and they don't believe that the fried chicken has any special power, they have inadvertently caused our friend Phileas to sin. They have inadvertently caused our friend Phileas to have a huge problem in his faith now. And in their pride about and their arrogance over th- saying, we all know this, we all know that this chicken has no special power, we all know th- 
that this meat doesn't do anything for us. We all know that the, the idol has no real existence. In their pride, they had ignored their weaker brother. In their pride, they had, frankly, just failed to care enough about Phileas to pay attention to what they were doing. And they had taken their knowledge and their right, and they had used it, even inadvertently, to harm their friend and to harm their brother. Paul continues on here. He says, however, not all, in verse 7, he says, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled or made unclean. And then he goes on in verse 8 through 11. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. Paul says here, he's making the point that our knowledge and our rights do not trump the command to love one another. Our knowledge and our rights do not trump the command to love one another. He says, yeah, you and I get it. You and I understand that idols have no existence. You and I understand that the food offered to them is not tainted. It's not made unclean. It doesn't matter whether we eat it or don't eat it. It's not going to make a difference at the end of the day. You and I get that. And therefore, we have the ability to eat or not eat of it. It doesn't matter. He said, but and we need to be aware that not everyone's like us. And that there are some believers out there that are still learning. And we need to not be putting a stumbling block in their path. Rather, we need to understand the command to love and to watch one another's backs. Paul says in another place, he says that we are to share in one another's burdens. In other words, we're to help each other with accountability. We're to help to to help one another through temptation, that we don't have to face that alone, but rather that we can come together shoulder to shoulder to strengthen others who have weaknesses and for others to strengthen our weaknesses. And so he says that knowledge, that, that our rights do not trump the command to love. He also is making the point that we should be removing temptation, not creating it. Again, in verse 9, he says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, in other words, if anyone observes you doing this, if his conscience is weak, will he not be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? He says, look, by taking your right and taking the knowledge you've been given, and doing so in a flippant manner, in a, in a world who cares manner, you are potentially putting a stumbling block and causing your brother or sister in Christ to sin. And that's a problem. He gives the depth of that problem in verses 12 through 13. He says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak you sin against Christ. In other words, causing them to sin, you have in, in, in extension sinned against Jesus Christ himself in harming your brother. Therefore, or therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Again, Paul gives great weight to this thing that we've done. 
He gives great weight to the idea that when we take our knowledge and we assume that everyone has that knowledge or we, we just don't care to check and we just act upon our, our impulses and our, our Christian conscience and our Christian freedom, that we have the potential to cause others to fall and to stumble. And in doing so, we are not just sinning against them because we have not cared for them, but we are sinning against our very own Savior and the sacrifice that He made for them. Jesus gives a dire warning as well, lest we think that Paul is making this up on his own. He says in Matthew 18, 5-6, as well as in Mark, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus makes an emphatic statement that we are to watch over one another, especially those who are new believers who are still finding their footing. We understand that. As Christians in general, we are tempted to go back to the world. We're tempted to, to find pleasure in the world. We're tempted to find contentment in the world. We're, content, we're uh, tempted to find safety in the world, the things the world says will keep us safe. And we must constantly guard for one, keep guard for one another. That we would not do that. That we would keep each other accountable. And even more so, that we should not be the ones tempting or giving that temptation. Lest we bring judgment upon ourselves. So Paul lays out this case. He says, look, you've asked this question about whether it is right or wrong to eat meat offered to idols. And you have come, some of you have come to the right conclusion that it doesn't matter. That the idol has not tainted the food, that the idol is not real, and that we are to serve God. And in doing so, you do right. In coming to that conclusion, you come to the right conclusion. But where you have gone wrong is in the pride of that knowledge. Where you have gone wrong is thinking that because you know that, you think everyone knows that. Because you know that, that now you can act upon that. He says, and in doing so, you have put others in danger. Which brings us to our own application this morning. And, lay, and the understanding of the importance of laying down our own rights. When we think about application this morning, we must ask ourselves, what are the areas that we hurt? We do more harm and we hurt rather than help. What are the areas in my own life that I know a freedom that I have, that I know, I know a right that I have, or something that I can do, or something that I can abstain from, and I've taken that knowledge and just done it, but in doing so, I have potentially put a stumbling block, potentially put temptation into the life of another. And there's lots of things, lots of things that we could think of. Lots of things that we could, that we could talk about. Um, one of the issues that this most closely is related to that you hear in Southern Baptist circles is the issue of alcohol. Let's go back to our story Let's say we are no longer members of First Baptist Church Corinth, but now we are first members of First Baptist Vandalia. And we have a friend named Phil. 
And Phil has just become a new believer. He's a great guy. We love him to death and we're excited about what the Lord is doing in him. But Phil, before he was a believer, he would find comfort in a drink. And not just one drink, but many drinks. And he would run to it. It didn't matter if it was a good day. That was reason to go to get a drink or many drinks. Or it didn't matter if it was a bad day. He found his comfort. He found satisfaction. He found safety in drinking. And it controlled him. It wasn't just a, an occasional thing. It wasn't a thing that he controlled. Rather, it was something that controlled him. And when Bob, the guy that led him to Christ, the guy, the guy that God used as an instrument of grace in his life, and now his Sunday school teacher, Bob leads him to Christ. And Bob says, hey, one of the things is you're going to have to give up that. You're going to have to give up drinking because it controls you and we should only be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so you need to stop finding your satisfaction in that. You need to stop finding your comfort in that. You need to stop finding uh, your, your, your fulfillment in that and you need to put that behind you. And so Phil comes to the understanding that Christians don't drink because they don't find stuff in that. They find stuff, everything in the Holy Spirit. And so Phil puts that behind him. He gets rid of it. He dumps it. What's in his house, he dumps down the sink. He stops hanging out in the places he used to hang out. And he just he puts that behind him. But there's occasions, there's occasions when he thinks to himself, man, that sounds really good. But he knows to himself, and he thinks to himself, I know that if I have one, that I'm going to have 20. And, I, and that's not what Christians do. And so he just puts it behind him, and, he, and he, he struggles with that temptation, but he moves forward. He goes to a party, gets invited to a party one day, and standing in one part of the party is Bob and a friend, Steve. And Bob and Steve are standing by a cooler, and each one of them is holding a drink, an alcoholic drink. And our friend Phil thinks to himself, wait a minute, I thought Christians didn't do that. I thought we, we didn't find our pleasure there. I thought we didn't find our fulfillment there I thought that we just focused on Christ and we put that behind us and so Phil walks over somewhat with a question in his mind but before he can get there his friend Bob reaches in the cooler and says hey you want one sure and so he takes that and he's like man I forgot how good this feels I forgot what this makes me feel like and so on Phil's way home he grabs he stops by the store and he grabs some more and he goes home and he does consume to abundance and he does find in the numbness that old familiar friend but he wakes up in the morning and he's hurting and he knows in his heart and in his conscience that he has sinned and he thinks to himself why why did i do that why were they doing that and his faith is damaged now, if you were to talk to Bob and Steve, they would have never dreamed that that would have been the issue. If you talk to Bob and Steve, they would probably tell you something along the lines of drinking alcohol is not a sin. And you would be hard-pressed to look through Scripture and find where it is. Now, it would be easy to find where drunkenness is. It would be easy to find where being controlled by a substance is. But then you see other things like where Paul is telling Timothy, hey, for medical purposes or you see Jesus at a wedding and he's drinking wine and, and you would begin to ask questions. But the point Paul is making is this. 
It doesn't matter whether you do or don't. The problem is, is that there are others who that is a temptation and a sin. And for that reason, and that reason alone, we just don't. For that reason and that reason alone, we are not flippant about that issue. And it's not just alcohol. Maybe for you, it's caffeine. Maybe, and I know that hurts. Okay? Maybe for you, it's a television show that you know doesn't really impact you. Like, you don't watch that television show and then go act on it. But you tell other people about that television show, and it does, like, they watch it, and they're like, really, should a Christian be watching that? And they, that does cause some, some temptation in their life. Maybe, maybe it's tobacco. Maybe it's the way you use the Internet. Maybe it's, we could go on and on and on. Things that in, of, in and of themselves are not evil. But when we use them in a flippant and careless manner, before others, even our own family, they can cause temptation. And so we must inspect ourselves and say, are there areas in my life where I, having knowledge and freedom and a clear conscience, am still hurting rather than helping? The second question is maybe equally difficult. The second question we have to ask ourselves in reading chapter 8 is, am I willing to give up, or are we willing to give up our rights for the salvation of others? That is is a weighted question for us. In a country where we value individual rights above almost everything. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's a good thing. But we get very defensive when we are asked to give up something that we know we have the right to do for the sake of someone else. We get very defensive when we're asked to give up a pleasure that we know there is no harm in because it may hurt or may hurt somebody else. We think, well, then that's their problem, not my own. That's their issue, not mine. My response to that is for us to look at the example of our Savior. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who was there from the very beginning and will be there through the eternity forward, surrounded in His rightful glory and in the rightful worship of all of heaven, surrounded by those that praised Him, who did not think it, anything to hold on to, but rather stepped into human flesh, giving up all of heaven that he may live here, that he may experience the heartache that we experience, that he may experience the temptation that we experience, that he may experience grief the way we experience it, knowing that he and he alone could do the thing we could not, which is live a perfect life. But not only did he do all that and live a perfect life, but then he looked at our condition and he did not think to himself, that's their problem, not mine. But rather he looked at our condition and he gave up his life freely. I love when he talks to Pilate and Pilate says, I have my hand, my, your life in my hands. Give me something. And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't have squat. 
I lay down my life and I pick my life up again. Jesus says, I'm the one that's going to lay down my life. I'm going to die so that they can have a relationship with their creator. So they don't have to experience the consequences of their own mistakes if they will just trust me. Brothers and sisters, we have been given a great example that we don't hold our own rights as something to be valued when we look at the soul of another. But rather we are willing to lay those rights down if it means the edification and the salvation of another. It's heavy stuff. It's hard stuff to do. It's not easy. Very little of what God calls us to do is easy because He expects us to trust Him in those things and to rely on Him for the ability to do them. But it's what we've been called to do as a family of God, as His sons and daughters, to watch over one another and especially to watch over those who are weaker, that we may care for them. Now this doesn't mean, and and just to qualify, this doesn't mean that we allow anything and everything to go. Where the Word says that something is clearly sin, then we call it sin and we don't pursue it. We don't okay it. We don't uh, allow it to slide. We understand that, that we, and we in love and, and with grace help that person to understand that this is wrong, but there is forgiveness. And we don't follow them in that. We don't allow it to continue in our presence. But in areas where like eating idol, meat offered to idols, it just simply doesn't matter. There we extend grace. There we lay down our rights and our knowledge out of love and compassion for the other. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response this morning. Maybe... Maybe you're like me and you're a believer and as you go through this passage and as, as the Lord unfolds it in your heart, you just begin to look at your own heart and you say, man, like this is an area in my life that I'm just far too careless with. And it, could, it presents a message that I don't want to present or it could present a message that I don't want to present about Jesus Christ and about who a believer is. That you would just pray, Lord... Lord, help me to lay that down. Lord, help me to lay it down. Maybe, again, maybe it's in something you consume, whether it's a food or a beverage, or maybe it's in the way that you talk. Maybe it's in, in the way that you talk, or, or maybe it's gossip, or maybe it's a entertainment that you partake of, or maybe it's how you spend your time. But you would just say, I, I, don't, I don't want to send that message. Lord, Forgive me and help me, help me to care about others and help me to love you enough to just let that, let that go. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this morning you hear about the sacrifice that He made for you. How He gave up His rights and He gave up His position and He gave up all of heaven so that He may do this incredible thing for you. That you may know life and you may know it abundantly. This morning I would pray that you would respond to that this morning. That you would 
in your heart that you would just know the calling of the Holy Spirit, that you would just sense this weight and that you would say, yeah, I, I need to respond to that. I want to know that. I want to know this, this God who would do such a thing for me. This morning, I pray that you would pursue that, that you would just speak to him and say, I want to know you. And then that you would talk to somebody. You can come talk to me now or after service or grab one of us and we would love, love to talk to you about that. But don't let that go. Allow God to do something there in your life. Respond to that, that feeling, that prompting that he's giving you. Let me pray. Father, we just come before you this morning and Father, we confess as a people that we love us. That we love what benefits us. That we love what brings us pleasure. That we love what brings us comfort. That we love what will bring us satisfaction. And Lord, so often that that leads us to put blinders on and we think that we're not hurting anybody else. We think that we're, we're just doing what everyone else does and it's no big deal. When in fact, Lord, that we are communicating a mixed message about who you are and, and who we are as born-again believers. Lord, maybe it's in, in the things that we do. Maybe it's in how we spend our time. Maybe it's in the, the things that we value. Father, I pray that you would just, just identify those things in our hearts and in our lives. That you would convict us of them this morning and that we would lay them down just as you laid down everything for us so that others may have a clearer and better picture of who you are. Father, I pray for, I pray for that individual that's here this morning that Maybe they've heard the gospel over and over again. They've heard about their sin and they've, they've heard about a hell and heaven. And Lord, they, they know all the right answers. But this morning they, they hear this, about this Savior and about this God who gave up His rights so that we didn't, we didn't have to face the judgment seat alone. So that we didn't have to face it as those who are already guilty, but that we might know His innocence and that we may be free. Father, I pray that You would just give courage to that person this morning. That You would give grace to that person this morning, Lord, that they would act on that. Or that they would ask questions, Lord, that they would, they would come to know You and trust You this God of great love and great sacrifice. Lord, may we give you a picture of that. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can stand.